Before we jump into today's episode, a brief word from our sponsor. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you're burnt out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be a solution for you. Not sure where to start? Locumstory.com is the place where you can get real unbiased answers to your questions. They answer basic questions like, what is locum tenant? To more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, various specialties, and how locum tenants can work for you. Go to locumstory.com or drpodcastnetwork slash locumstory and get the answers. A compliment, the, uh, the compliment to that story is yet another lawsuit, which is a failure to deliver news of lab results. The yin and the yang to the litigation <laughs> world. Anyway, here um, a gay man was vigilant about observing uh, his HIV negative status, meaning that he was HIV negative and was religious about being tested um, at least annually. And this is an older case. So in 2012, he was tested twice. Uh, twice, both tests were returned as negative. Later that summer, since 2012, he did not feel well. HIV test was performed, looking at the viral load. Um, so the results were not immediately available. The physician uh, stated the patient was advised to call to learn of the results. Um, the patient claimed he never heard that advice, and so he assumed <clears throat> no news was good news. How often have we heard that story? We just, yeah. just, if we don't hear from you, no news is good news. Not a great strategy in healthcare. Nope. All right. Anyway, what happened? Several days later, the results were confirmed to be positive for HIV. Uh, for HIV. These results were placed in the patient's uh, medical file, and did anybody pick up the phone and make a call? No, they did not. Anyway, 15 months later, so now we're into uh, 2013, following year, the state of Louisiana um, had been advised of the patient's status, presumably through some type of public health reporting, and the health department employee called the patients. That's the first time the patient has been called and told him to come in uh, for, for a meeting. Uh, patient stated he suffered emotional distress, not knowing his HIV status for 15 months and finding it out from a stranger, someone other than the doctor that, um, that uh, he had, had worked with. And the allegation <clears throat> was that the standard of care was violated by not reaching out to the patient with test results. Earlier, the doctor argued, hey, the patient was told to return and learn of the results. Uh, ultimately, a jury awarded $45,000 to the patient. So not an astronomical number, but still this was a verdict in favor of uh, the patient, in this case, uh, the plaintiff. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. No news is good news is, in my estimation, the default understanding of, of patients. They assume that if they've not heard anything from the practice, the coast is clear, no need to worry. 
but really no news is actually no news. No news is actually uh, <laughs> no right. news. Um, interestingly enough, um, I think one way to manage this is similar to the way um, stores at in airports and other stores actually manage the problem of theft. Let me explain because I know I've made a strained analogy here, and I, I, we're we're on video, so I can see you scratching your head profusely right now. So let me continue. There you go. Um, when I purchase something at the airport, there's often a sign that says, um, "If the cashier does not give you a receipt, your purchase is free." The cashier does not give you a receipt, your purchase is free, and. I've always wondered what the purpose of that was. And I think it's quite simple. It's to the owner of the store is deputizing me, the customer, to keep an eye on the cash register to prevent the the cashier from taking my $20 bill and sticking it into his pocket. Um, and the best way they do that is by generating a receipt. If receipts were never generated, then the paper trail goes away. So they, the owner of the store is hoping that I will keep my eye on the, uh, the cashier and that um, I'll force him indirectly to give me uh, the receipt so that the audit trail works. Um, so I've been, uh, so the, the customer has been dragooned, and I wanted to use that word today, so we was able <laughs> to do it. Customer has been dra dragooned into serving as the guard for the register. Now, I'm, I'm overstating the case for a you know $4 purchase. But my point is, is that I've now, I now, the customer serve the role as the guard. Now, in the strained analogy, it would be helpful to, to dragoon the patient into keeping the doctor or the practice um, up to speed with lab results. If you change the default assumption from no news is good news to no news is no news, you can do so by saying, look, you, you should hear from us within a week about your x-ray, you should hear from us within a week about your MR scan or your lab results. And by the way, if you do not hear from us, for whatever reason, you should call our office or your visit is free or your visit is free, what you would be doing with that little sign you would stick on the door on the way out is telegraph to the patient, no news is no news, and we'll do our best to get uh, the results to you and get them interpreted. But if you don't hear from us for whatever reason, something happened, and you still need to get that nugget of information. And I'm trying to change the default assumption to hey, look, we're going to give you money if we drop the ball. Not a lot of money. Um, we're not talking about anything that's going to be life-altering. But it's like when I'm at the airport saying, I'll, your, your purchase is free. Here we're saying your visit is free. Now, do practices do that? I don't know. But I think it's a good way to just change that default assumption. So we avoid this he said, she said. I mean, if the doctor tells the patient it's your duty to call the office to get your results, I'm not sure those are best practices, but I get it. I do think that if, you know, 99% of results are normal, it can be onerous to to get on the phone and call the patient. Now, interestingly enough, many patients now have access to a patient portal, 
And more recently, um, with the Open Notes program, I guess it's euphemistically called Open Notes, um, patients have access to readable descriptions of their visit almost in real time. As soon as the information comes in, a patient can get access to it. Now, whether they take advantage of it or not, I don't know. And since many people struggle with being able to get into the patient portal, I'm not sure it changes the calculus of what we're discussing here, which is how do you get abnormal results to a patient so they can be timely to act on it? I think if the results are normal, then the then the um, the sense of urgency of getting this information to the patient is not as great. But if the results are abnormal, then I think it's a dereliction of duty not to pass on the information. But look, we're human; things happen. There there need to needs to be some fail-safe mechanism to make sure that this stuff doesn't fall through the cracks. Mike, was that a fairly strained analogy with the cashier at the airport? I know you've had that experience there. Look, I I was traveling over the weekend, and if I was the person that owned some of those kiosks that had people working, I would definitely want to deputize as many people in the general public to oversee that cast of characters as possible. Um, These are not someone that you really, uh, in my then you want want to uh, entrust with your your goods and your in the cash and the register, so I understand a why. But switching to your your point of the uh, patient portal, I, I think that that that's a good one um, to avoid the he said she said nature of this case. I think I would put up some kind of a sign or a notice. Um, in the in the practice telling people exactly that if it that you can check the patient portal if you haven't gotten results from us um, contact us within x number of of, of days or, or hours uh you know within 72 hours of your visit if you haven't heard you know, uh, contact us something that you could point to and say we have a normal procedure occasionally Unfortunately, things will slip through the cracks. It's just the the nature of this kind of volume. But the way we deal with that is we notify every patient. It's on our website. We've got a sign up, and they certainly have access to the patient portal where it has all this information, and we direct them there as well. Um, but we we need them to participate in this um, to some to some extent. We're not a not a veterinarian office. We, 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 we're treating people and, and they can be part of their own care. And here's how we, we try to empower them to do that. I think also from a legal perspective, it may, let's assume you do completely and totally drop the ball. If you have put a note on the door, which says that if you've not heard from us, call our practice um, or your visit was free, and you also have below that, by the way, you can certainly collect information on the patient portal. There's how you do it. Um, in a sense, you've created a duty for the patient. So what is the impact of that? If you have a duty as a physician to deliver results timely to a patient, particularly if they're abnormal results, you you kind of have created a duty for the patient to follow up on that. And duty is the is the one of the elements that is necessary in a negligent suit. <clears throat> so if the doctor is negligent, but the patient is also negligent, the patient is also negligent, you start chipping away at the damages in most states. So let me give color to this. Let's say that the jury says that this was a $100,000 verdict, okay? 
the doctor dropped the ball. And because the doctor dropped the ball, the patient was injured to the tune of um, $100,000. <clears> if in that same scenario, the patient is considered to be 40% negligent, that is, the doctor is mostly negligent, the practice is mostly negligent, but the patient kind of dropped the ball because they were given options to follow up and they had a duty to mitigate or at least a duty to not be negligent themselves. They just can't stick their head in a, a rabbit hole and never pull it out. Um, if they are 40% negligent in many states, and I won't bore you to tears with the various ways these things are calculated, but in comparative negligent states, which would be the majority of the states, that award is chiseled down. So. In the example, I said it's a hundred thousand dollar award, but I've also said the jury determined the patient was was forty percent negligent. So you can do the math. The practice was sixty percent negligent. <clears throat> the ultimate award to the patient will be sixty thousand dollars. So instead of a hundred thousand dollar award to the uh, to the patient, it's been whittled down to sixty thousand because the patient has been considered by the jury to be negligent. Now, there are, there are probably three or four states, I think it's four, and where I live, North Carolina is one of them, there's something called contributory negligence. And the Lord knows how and why it still exists, and it may be a relic from the 1800s or even before. But contributory negligence is the following. If, in my example, the patient is found to be negligent at all, at all, at meaning one tenth of 1% negligent. So the practice is 99 plus percent negligent. The patient was a scintilla of a, <laughs> of a fraction uh, being negligent. In a contributory negligent state like North Carolina, <clears throat> the patient collects nothing. They walk away with nothing. Uh, even if the jury concluded that the verdict was worth $100,000. So, I mean, you can see <clears throat> the benefit from a legal strategy in terms of creating some type of duty for the patient. Um, the jury will always perceive the doctor to be in a power position, having more niche information than the patient. But to the extent you can educate the patient and change the default assumption, two good things happen. One, fewer patients will, um, will, will have labs fall through the, or abnormal labs fall through the cracks, meaning that more people will get the information. So that's a good thing. We want to see that happen. We want to see the right thing happen. And alternatively, um, if for whatever reason things fall through the cracks, the patient will have um, been tasked with some legal duty. And in doing so, if a verdict goes against the practice, goes against the doctor, the verdict likely will be whittled down because of uh, the patient's own negligence. That, that is a good uh, description of uh, contributory and comparative uh, negligent states. It's triggering some kind of uh, post-traumatic stress from law school <laughs> for me. So, uh, we could move into no. the statute of frauds, uh, not the statute of frauds. What's the, um, the rule against perpetuities? Um, mm. For, for those of brutal. you who are interested, just go to the Wikipedia page of the rule against perpetuities, and it is properly explained <clears throat> as the following. There is no lawyer in the country that can explain the rule against perpetuities. Not one. There's not one person. 
it's a cruel uh it's a cruel thing to do to law students to try to and, make them learn something that is unknowable <laughs> yes well there apparently was a lawsuit <clears throat> by the way we're we're digressing here we will come back to the original topic apparently there was a lawsuit in california my understanding is it went up to the California Supreme Court. It was based on the rule against perpetuities where the client was suing um, the attorney alleging that they got screwed out of the will or the estate plan because of a failure to properly appreciate the rule against perpetuities. And the Supreme Court ruled against the plaintiff. Why? They said, Nobody can understand the rule against perpetuities, including your lawyer. And so essentially, <laughs> just kick that up, find that, and shoot that around. Of course, that's that's estate planning and um, other types of law, completely and totally unrelated to the task at hand uh, right here. So let's let's gently work our way back uh, to the original discussion. I do have something I want to bring up, um, and it's it should be obvious, but it's not. If you as a doctor order a lab, if you as a doctor order a lab, um, it is assumed you will interpret the lab unless a record explicitly states otherwise. So if you believe a lab is a false positive or false negative, then you must make recommendations to address and document. I, I think not infrequently you'll see people order a lab and it goes into the chart and that's the end of that. And if it turns out it's abnormal and there's nothing there, I think there's a chance you will burn if it's a true abnormal result. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I agree. If you've gone to the, uh, to the extent of ordering it, then you're responsible to interpret it and pass along that, uh, that news. Um, and certainly CMS and others would say that is what you're being paid for um is is part of all of this so just want word, word to the wise uh just because you've ordered it doesn't mean you're you're done and yeah, i think order, most people know it so i think we're saying a couple things if you order it uh you probably need to get the result back to the patient that's the first thing and number two you need to interpret it so if it's negative i mean if it's a positive result and you think it's a false positive you probably need to document how and why you think it's a false positive what your line of reasoning is um, and likewise, if it's a false negative, you also have some issues you need to figure out. But again, if you are the ordering doctor, you will be um, held uh, to uh, to account. And I think the other thing that's kind of interesting is that if you if you send a that is if you call the patient, if you're a specialist and you call the patient's primary care doctor, and you believe somehow that the primary care doctor will deliver the news to the patient, you probably actually not probably, you certainly should have a paper trail related to the conversation you had with the primary care doctor. I've seen this several times happen where there's a finding or an abnormal result and you want to get context and you have a chat with the primary care doctor and he or she says, thank you for the information. I appreciate it. Um, if, if you believe somehow that, um, the primary care doctor is going to use this information and then deliver the news to the patient, you should make sure that that's exa exactly what's going to happen. And number two, I would document that. I would document that you had a conversation on you know, June 25th at, at 4 p.m. with you know, Dr. PCP, 
and um, after giving the information to to this physician, they they assured me that they would um, pick up the baton, have a chat with the patient, and engage in appropriate follow up treatment. I think that's the way you protect yourself. The more doctors you have, and um, if everybody's pointing the finger at each other it turns into a circular firing squad with a plaintiff attorney sitting on the sideline eating popcorn, just waiting for um, the the jury to say, um, well, I guess we can't figure it out, so everybody needs to pay. If you want to insulate yourself, you need decent documentation. I mean, these are just basic principles, but and I know doctors are busy, but if, you, if you've gone to the trouble to pick up a phone and call a primary care doctor, you're almost done. Just go ahead and document that conversation. I think we also need to loop staff into this um, and have a consistent message to those that are your support staff as to how results are going to be handled and what the expectations are. Uh, it becomes difficult for staff if they've not been told what your expectations are or if you have multiple physicians all doing different things as far as um, delivering results, timing, and, and so forth. I think there needs to be consistency. So if there's ever a mistake, you could say this is our normal course and we, we try to, and here are the safeguards to it, but we don't want some staff member saying, you know what, no, no one ever really told me how, how this is and Dr. Jones does something different than, than Dr. Smith and I just assume this was um, the normal, uh, the normal way things are done. We, we don't need that kind of confusion and it certainly looks like there's been no coordination of your, your whole team. And that that's bad. Yeah, workflow for standard operating protocols or procedures make a lot of sense, particularly if they're in writing. And I think an SOP for abnormal lab results makes sense, even if we're just talking about a workflow. Workflow for how um, diagnostic information comes back: labs, X-rays, MR scans, pathology reports. Standard operating procedure, and it's not dissimilar to other mission critical industries, take aviation. So in aviation, um, certainly in commercial aviation, you generally have two pilots in the cockpit um, and they have their checklist on how things work. It's not one person winging it, no pun intended, but it is, um, it is two people who go through the checklist and they are empowered to speak up. And I, I don't think it's a bad idea to have two people empowered with workflow, um, with labs, x-rays, MR scans, path report, et cetera, to figure out how to manage this. Two, two sets of eyes are often better than one, and it keeps things from, uh, from falling through the cracks. I don't you know, it's interesting, decades ago, <clears throat> there was a horrible aviation accident. I believe it was in the Canary Islands when two 747s crashed into each other. One was taking off, the other one was on the runway and didn't quite clear. And I think the pilot for um, for the, the plane that made the mistake uh, was late and he didn't want to have to miss a window of opportunity, disembark and have, you know, however many people on a 747 go to hotel rooms in the Canary Islands, have the company pay for it. I mean, that was considered bad, bad, bad. But the the window to get this problem fixed, I mean, to take off was narrowing. So anyway, rush, rush, rush. Apparently, I don't know how they discern this, but the co-pilot was aware that 
the plane was not going to make it, <laughs> that it was, wasn't going to take off properly and they were going to crash. And my understanding is instead of vetoing the, uh, the primary pilot's choice because of the hierarchy, because the co-pilot at the time was deferential to the, the voice of the king, you know, in this case, the primary pilot, he did not speak up, but there, with the benefit of hindsight, I think people thought that he knew that there was going to be a problem. And I think he just marched in marched to death. Uh, he, he, he ended up dying, of course, as did virtually everyone else on that plane. It was at the time, it was the worst aviation uh, accident uh, in history. And I think the take home point was that people need to be free to speak up and challenge authority if they believe there's a problem. And in doing so, having two brains better than one brain, at least as it relates to uh, uh, to mission critical industries like aviation, and following that and some updates in SOP, stand, standard oper operating protocols in the aviation industry, they delivered, the industry delivered exemplary, uh, an exemplary safety record. Now, of course, there are always challenges in the aviation industry, and we're always learning more and more. But medicine is also mission critical. There are a lot of moving parts. Um, and I think having several people, or two, two people, um, part of the workflow for abnormal results, or even just lab results in general, just to pop it through, you are less likely to, to run into uh, the problem of missing, missing the delivery of news. Before we end, don't forget to visit locumstory.com or drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory to get real unbiased answers to all your locum tenants questions. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews, at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups, and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider 
and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.